So this is our third podcast with Cancer Trials Ireland and my name is Evelyn Mulro and I'm the CEO of Cancer Trials Ireland and I'm really happy to introduce you to you today Professor Sean Deneen um, from NUI Galway. He's a consultant endocrinologist and you might think well why are we why are we talking to an endocrinologist in Cancer Trials Ireland? And he's got some really interesting stories to tell about public and patient involvement in his research and in the research that's happening um, within his department and university. But first, Sean, if it's okay to call you Sean, I'd love you to give us a little bit of background. You're very welcome. Thanks, Evelyn. It's great to have you um, from the West. And we'd love a bit of background on on you. Like, how, how did you get here? I was looking at your biog and, and saw you, you studied in Cork and then you took a journey after that. I did indeed. Yeah. Thanks, Evelyn, for having me on this uh, podcast and for, you know, for highlighting, uh, I guess, uh, PPI, as we call it, public and patient involvement. So, yeah, I'm a Cork man by, yeah. by birth and, and by sporting allegiance. Um, <laughs> so I, I traveled. My father was a railway man and we traveled around a lot, as you do as a railway child. So and then whether it was that sort of rambling gene. But as an adult, um, I, I traveled around a lot and I trained after qualifying in UCC and spending a few years there as a, as a junior doctor. I went to the States and completed a residency at the Mayo Clinic and then got the elusive green card and ended up spending um, 10, 10 years Why? in the States. Uh, or the length of 10 long winters, as my as my wife remembers them. You know, it's a, a great place to work, but a challenging place to live at times yeah. in the Midwest. So um, and then there were, you know, very few jobs for people with my kind of training back in Ireland. I was interested in an academic endocrinology job. And so I ended up spending five years in the NHS. I worked in Edinburgh's hospital in Cambridge before returning to Ireland. And I've been back now as long for we were out of Ireland for about 15 years and I'm back about 15 years. So that's that's basically a, a snapshot. I've been in Galway in a ac- very academically oriented department, which I really and I think all of us really value. We have about eight uh, endocrinologists. The majority of us have joint appointments between the hospital and the university. And those who don't have joint appointments are very academically inclined. So we, we have, um, I think, a really strong department and we, we like to you know, do things well. And, and that's that's always a challenge in a health service like ours, you know, that's constantly under pressure. But um, yeah, it's been a real pleasure working here and contributing to the various different areas of, of our work. Was it a big adjustment coming back? Because we see that a lot in oncology, you know, and hematology. Returning yeah. from the States. From yeah. the States, from a different setup, I suppose, from the research perspective. Yeah, I mean, it, it was an interesting journey. I, I was... As I mentioned, I was at the Mayo Clinic, which is probably, you know, one of the preeminent um, academic medical centers, well, in the US, probably in the world. Yeah. I, yeah. I had a sort of a, an awakening. I, I naively, I suppose, I thought, you know, this is phenomenal, the care that, that they're delivering at Mayo. And I didn't want to leave it. As I mentioned, my wife was the driving yeah. force behind returning. <laughs> but I, I then came to the bad old NHS. And, um, you know, I, I realized that at Mayo, you get phenomenal care but it's really offered to those who can who can afford it as opposed to the NHS where 
they really do you know when when you're when you work in the nhs you're you're always aware of its of its wants and its failings when you leave the nhs you realize immediately its strengths you know and, and the biggest strength is universal coverage and you know providing uh, care to to everybody um based on need so i think ireland um has been I think Ireland still is um, has a hybrid model. It has elements of of the American system, you know, with the with the private mm. focus, um, but it also has elements of of uh, the NHS and and sort of universal coverage. There's a lot happening in the world of chronic disease at the moment, and I'm really excited to be to be part of it um, on the diabetes front because I think that's that's very much you know driven by the, the idea that you know that care for certain conditions. And and I'm not sure that cancer is one of them, but care for chronic conditions or for older persons, you know, should be provided as a given yeah. by your GP and your your, your health service. You know, I, I think the high end care that perhaps um, you know people like like your your colleagues um, deliver, I, I I think is probably best done with a public private sort of. Because that that's that seems to be how it happens in Ireland. I'm not heavily involved in cancer care, but um, I, I think Ireland has has the potential to take the best of both worlds um, and and meld it. Absolutely, mm. it, it's funny in Ireland. There's there's more going on in research in in the public hospitals than the private hospitals, which is interesting. And, and often you see in cancer patients who are in the private system end up on a trial in the public system, which is unusual, you know. And and in in the US. You know, nearly half of the cancer patients in private hospitals there are on a trial, whereas, you know, in the public system only in the US, only 5% are on a a clinical trial. So there's a disparity between, you know, those who can and those who can't, uh, you know, and I suppose that I I like that stat because I think, you know, whatever trials we're doing in cancer in Ireland, we're doing them um, primarily through the public system and hope, hope that will change over time because... Patients are seen in both, you know, in this country. Yes, but I, I, I do think that, you know, that that having research, be it clinical trials or, or, or you know, investigator led research in the public hospital really does mean it, it, it has knock on benefits that are not always apparent. So I, I work f- as an example, I work in, in uh, diabetic foot as a, as a specialty area, and we're about to get involved in our first uh, clinical trial of a, of a device that is aimed at preventing foot ulceration in patients who've had previous foot ulceration. So the, the highest risk group, without a doubt, for future uh, foot ulcers in, in people with diabetes are those who've had previous ones. So we, we use the term in remission, borrowed from cancer for those patients. And a, a spin-out company called Blue Drop Medical in Galway has has developed a really sophisticated device for monitoring these patients. And, and I'm, I'm really excited about, you know, our participation in a pilot of this device with some colleagues in the UK. But my main reason for being excited is not so much the intervention arm of the trial that that will be interesting but it's actually the the control arm because in order to participate in this trial i know that we will have to up our game we will have to you know deliver really really good care and and to me that is, I think, the huge benefit of, of clinical research within a, you know, within a clinical, of, of research within a clinical department. It does up the standard of care, doesn't it? Just by its very nature, yeah. irrespective of, 
of whether you're in the control Absolutely. arm yeah, or not. And you've seen that, obviously. Well, I hope I will see it in diabetic foot. I've seen it in other areas of my work. And interestingly, you know, at the opening of our uh, clinical research facility, yeah. Martin O'Donnell, who's our, our no, was our well. director of the CRF. Yeah. Yeah. So Martin was walking, doing a walkthrough with um, Enda Kenny, who was I teacher was at the time. And was op- he was okay. <laughs> I remember. Well, I, I heard, I heard probably the the smartest ever little sort of soundbite. Um, I heard Martin say to Enda Kenny, "You know, of course, that hospitals that are involved in clinical research deliver better care." Yeah. And I thought, what a smart thing to say. Martin, as you know, his brother is a politician and Martin himself is a politician <laughs> as well. But I, I thought I thought that was just and, and that actually I think the reason it resonated with me is that it's one of the things that I really value. Yeah. You know, I don't see research as something that we do, you know, in our spare time or, you know, at nights or on weekends. It should be a core element. And it is, thankfully, in our department, a core element of our work. And and the reason it is important is that there are these ripple effects, these knock on benefits, you know, to everybody, not just to the trial participants. Yeah. And, and, you know, one of the biggest challenges now in Ireland is going to be attracting doctors in particular and nurses to work in the Irish system. Isn't that a factor as well? You know, if you know, it, it's more interesting yeah, to work in a hospital where there's a lot of research going on. I, I, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think not just, you know, we, we tend to think of um, trials as being led when and they usually are led by the doctor, but actually, you know, I, he- I heard, and I'm sure you would know her, I can't remember her name, but one of the people who leads the Clinical Trial Nurses uh, Association in Ireland, I heard her speak recently at an IHRF webinar. And, um, you know, I think it, it, we have, a whatever about attracting doctors back, we have a real deficit in, in nurses, you know, and I think, I think being involved in research, being involved in trials um, is something that we should be promoting across the board. Absolutely. And the clinical research nurse, I'll never forget one patient describe it to me like her mother holding her hand on her first day of school. That's how she felt about her clinical research nurse at the time. So they're really core in in your in a department that's running trials um, and particularly from the patient. And that kind of leads me on to why, you know, we want to talk to you, Sean, because you've got and, and what I really want to ask you is from your perspective as a doctor, as a clinical researcher, what does PPI mean to you and why is it important? What does public and patient engagement in research mean? And, and, and what have you done about it with, within your own research? Because I think we could learn a lot from that. Hmm. Um, so I, I've come at this, I suppose, from a, from a clin- as a clinician, you know, and I, I like to think, I suppose we all like to think that we deliver care in a person-centered way. That's a phrase that's bandied around a lot and, and you know, I, I think it can be, well, it means different things to different people. But the story that I'll, I'll tell you about my own PPI journey, I, I think, you know, that that sort of uh, person-centered approach is key to it. So we, we um, have in our department, we, we deliver young adult clinics, you know, so we, we take, you know, youngsters, adolescents with type 1 diabetes up, come up from pediatrics around 18 years of age, usually when they when they do their leaving cert, they transition over to our, our adult services. And we've established a young adult clinic so that we see the 18 to 25 year olds, 
you know, separately from the, the madding crowd, as it were. You know, they're not sort of yeah. arriving into a, uh, a clinic with, with 60, 70, 80, whatever patients. But and, and so that that um, young adult clinic um, back about 10 years ago now, we audited the outcomes of our of our clinic and they were very poor. We published and we reported and published the outcomes, which, you know, were nothing. It was like hanging your dirty laundry out in, in public. Yeah. But actually, subsequently... It's important. It is, it's yeah. important and, to and, do that. And subsequently, yeah. actually, in Ireland, at, at Irish Endocrine Society, several of, of our colleagues around the country have done similar audits. And, and in the UK in particular, and elsewhere in Europe, you know, there's something about that young adult age bracket in type 1 where blood sugar control in particular and clinic attendance um, really just go to pot, you know, and, and we would have upwards of 30 to 50 percent uh, non-attendance at some of our young adult clinics. And to me, you know, back then, I mean, that that basically says the thing is broken. If you've got 30 to 50 percent of people not availing of what you're offering, then I think it's it's not unreasonable to you know, to interpret that as saying, well, what we're offering isn't working or isn't isn't uh, valued. So, so we set about trying to reimagine care, and we recognised from from very early on that that you know we as healthcare professionals, doctors, nurses involved in delivering the clinics, we were unlikely to come up with the solution because we sort of hadn't come up with it before. Yeah. So we reached out. Um, Using a model that we came across in the Jigsaw Youth Mental Health Service, I don't know if you're familiar with Jigsaw, but I am. They yeah, have, I know them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they they deliver youth mental health services to young people age 16 to about age 30. But they really kind of walk the walk in terms of user involvement. They have um, a young adult panel. This is in Galway. I think it's yeah. throughout the Jigsaw centres around the country. But we work closely with um, Sarah Simkin and her team in Galway. And, and they really have the young people who are service users work with them to make the service more open and more accessible and more you know, in, in line with what they feel um, people want. And so we, we adopted that approach and we, we formed a young adult panel and, and we set about um, putting together a program of research, which our young adult panel, we call it, uh, we, the intervention that we developed, we call D1 Now. And the D1 Now YAP, our young adult panel, have been really, you know, the term co-researchers, they've been with us as as co- as co-investigators on the journey, wow, so their that's voice, amazing. co-investigators. Yeah, their voice is really, um, you know, a, a hugely important part of of what we have achieved over the past few years. And what we've achieved is not insignificant. You know, we developed uh, or designed and developed an intervention, um, and we have just completed and published a pilot of the uh, ran- of a randomized controlled trial of that intervention. And we're hoping next year to get funding for a definitive trial. So the, the world of complex interventions, as opposed to IMP, you know, I work mainly with health psychologists, a colleague, Molly Byrne, who's been a fantastic collaborator over the years. So we, we work in this area of, of developing, as I say, complex interventions as opposed to drugs or devices. Of course, um, yeah. And, and the complex intervention world um, is, is very much guided by a medical research council or MRC framework for, you know, for evaluating and developing and evaluating complex interventions. And we have followed that path with our D1 Now study. And um, as I say, we, we have, you know, completed 
the the recently completed a pilot and hope to take it forward to a full RCT. So I would say that you know recognizing early on that we weren't going to crack this on our own and inviting the young adult panel to join us using the jigsaw approach to forming the young adult panel is, is that's how I got involved in public and patient involvement and it's been I, I would say one of the most rewarding things I've done you know is 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 the phrase listening to the patient voice is another phrase, a bit like person-centered care that's bandied around yeah. a lot. But actually, yeah. you know, we have managed to pull it off thanks to the, you know, some of our YAP members have been with us now for seven years. And, you know, they've they've actually passed out of the uh, age of bracket, the age. you know. <laughs> um, but even still, they, they, they feel a sense of, you know, wanting to contribute for the next generation of young adults who kind of who are coming through the system. It's actually interesting you're talking about that because it's an area I think we're focusing on in cancer under the Health Research Board's new funding to cancer groups and, and that population, the young adult population who transition from paediatrics into young adulthood and how we handle that um, within clinical trials is is something I'm glad to say is a focus for the HRB and, and how they're funding our work going forward. So that's really interesting, you know, that and what I'd love to know from you, Sean, is is at the when this was first discussed with you you know the idea of 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 working with young adults and bringing them into to your your randomized study and 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 getting their mm. input were you hesitant at all or, or were you cynical at all about the, the the notion of ppi or did you get it from the get-go maybe you've seen it in other countries or um no i mean i i had some reservations of course but i i felt that as i said earlier you know we didn't we didn't have the answer we needed to you know think about the problem um differently and i i've been reflecting on this a lot recently mm. and i think i'm I, i'm an endocrinologist I, I come from a very sort of biomedical background you know we we, yeah. we train our our doctors to be well i i think if you were to describe the approach that we take it's very reductionist science you know it's it's sort of hypothesis testing you know that's that's what yeah the the irish endocrine society and i'm sure a lot of our you know probably the oncologists as well you know it's it's about testing and a hypothesis and you know proving it or not but actually the approach that i think you know ppi lends itself to is a much more open-ended kind of question it's 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 about you know, trying to come up with hypotheses to test as opposed to, you know, a, an absolute yes or yay or nay. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that mindset, which I I have always had a, a penchant or a leaning towards people like Molly Byrne, you know, health psychology, clinical psychology, and they have a different uh, sort of DNA. You know, they're they're much more inclined to qualitative as opposed to quantitative perhaps research, you know, they're, they're very open to, and, and I think that that mindset is probably a help if you're, if you're exploring or interested in exploring PPI. So finding some area within your work, your, within your research, where you don't have the answer and trying to bring the public or patient voice into um, finding it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I suppose 
have you found that some of the people involved from your PPI journey have come up with the ideas, have come up with a hypothesis themselves? Because that's something we've seen within the cancer community. When you when you start to do it right, and um, there was a great guy called Michael Katz, and you know he passed away unfortunately, but he had myeloma. He's a US patient, and he came up with the idea, the notion of a of a reduced treatment regime for the particular cancer. He was he ended up being awarded um, and acknowledged by the the associate the Global Association for Cancer ASCO um, a few years ago, and it was very much a patient led study, you know, and a patient led trial. Is that something you're open to? Those kinds of conversations. I, I think you have to be, Evelyn. I mean, to do this properly, I, I think. It, it calls for a degree of, I'm looking for the right word, perhaps humility on the part of the PI, you know, uh, on the part of the principal investigator. It's this acknowledgement that you don't have all the answers. Um, and, and we have had, not, not dissimilar to what you described, we have had, our, our young adult panel feel very strongly that the care that is delivered um, in most of our clinics is very HbA1c orientated. We have this blood test. Um, I, I've described it as both a blessing and a curse in in diabetes care. So if if it's it's a single test that tells you or tells us how a person's diabetes control has been for the past two or three months, and you know it it is it tends to be the only arbiter of sort of good or bad or you know we use terms that are very emotive in describing blood sugar control but our young adult panel feel very strongly that you know that 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 should not be what it's all about and and the 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 intervention that we've developed is is much more orientated towards you know what do you want to get out of the visit today what's your priority they realize how important the a1c is and and at the moment in preparing for you know to write a protocol for our definitive trial we're i would say having the phrase i would use is robust discussions with our young adult panel Very around good. the primary Great. outcome so you know most trials in diabetes are and the primary outcome is usually A1C because it lends itself to being a primary outcome. It's a continuous variable. It's a biochemical test. We have a lot of you know information about variability and, and so on around the measure. Um, but our young adult panel feel very strongly that you know the outcome in our trial should be around you know personal engagement. You know things like self-efficacy, things like you know diabetes distress, which is. A phenomenon, or, or it's it's a it's a, a a situation that that we've only recently in the diabetes world come to realize exists, you know, and we can measure it. So they they would our young adult panel would like to see us um, ha- put a one c. They absolutely recognize it has to be in there because what we're you know in the end of the day they realize that achieving target a one c is really really important. But to get there. They feel that we should be emphasizing, and that's what we've been trying to do, you know, emphasizing other other things, you know, and, and those other things are, you know, living with a condition that does not go away. Exactly. And that's something we've heard a lot from, like, a, you know, patient advocates over the years where, you know, the scientists and the, and the clinicians are, are looking at, you know, can we find a, a cure for this or can we find 
the answers to this cancer or whatever. And and the patient is often saying, well, can I actually walk to the shop and buy a pint of milk without being exhausted? You know, and it's it's about being able to live sometimes with the condition. And, and that's isn't that where, you know, the perspective is so different when you're the person with it. Another example that I came across recently, one of our surgical trainees based in Galway last year has now gone across to the NHS and is um, in a, in a a training program in London and he's got involved with a group called Burst Urology B-U-R-S-T I hadn't come across them but they're, it's a clinical trial network led completely by SPRs so specialist registrars have, have combined across the UK and they're basically delivering really really high quality um, clinical trials in their area of urology. There are burst groups, I understand, in other in other disciplines as well, mainly surgical, interestingly. But th- this person that I'm referring to, um, I-, I was in touch with him before and after his transfer over to the UK. And the trial that he's involved in designing and you know writing a protocol for has a huge PPI element to it. And it's in the area of kidney stones. So the learning for me was that when a urologist, and, and I hope you probably have urologists listening to this, I hope they'll forgive me if I've got yeah, it wrong. Hopefully. But I mean, when, when a patient has a, has a kidney stone, as I understand it, it's kind of par for the course that the ureter will be stented at the time of removal of the stone. And from what I understand of this trial, which is about to go in for, I think it's MRC or welcome funding, is that the, the, the primary outcome is is going to be a measure of, of, of quality of life and time in hospital. Because what they've learned is that from the patient's perspective, the stent, which is inverted commas, often the cure or perceived as the cure, you know, by the urologist is worse than the treatment. There can be problems with the stenting. So I just thought it was a fantastic example of, again, listening, you know, to the patient voice. And, and I suspect the majority of trials in, in this area of, of, of kidney stones in urology are not designed with that focus, with that emphasis or with that lens, you yeah. know. And, and, and I, think, I think the outcome in, in, in this trial that I'm referring to will, will very likely be um, different. Yeah. From the traditional outcome. Yeah. And of course, like there's a lot of data on this, but, you know, and there will be more as the years go ahead. Recruitment is a massive issue um, across the world in in cancer trials. And when you involve the people you're trying to recruit at the very start, it has an impact on your recruitment because you're appealing to to the patients. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And in our D1 Now pilot, our young adult panel came up with uh, a SWOT, a study within a trial. You know, we work closely with... Uh, Declan, Declan Devan and the TMRN here in Galway and you know they're big promoters of SWOT studies within a trial and the SWOT that our YAP designed um, ha- will, will undoubtedly be part of our definitive trial because it was so brilliantly thought about so they, they basically offered a gift to people who were um, recruited into the trial and, and you know we looked at our, or we designed the SWAT so that you either got this pop socket. I, don't, I, I, I had no idea what a pop socket was before this. Yeah, uh, I don't either. This <laughs> SWAT. Uh, yeah, well, it's it's that device that you put on the back of your iPhone or your, your smartphone okay. to allow it to sort of sit up or stand up or whatever. Oh, um, yes, I so, know what so you can kind of yeah. hold the pop socket. Yeah. And um, we had a, a 
a D1 Now branded pop socket as a gift, which we gave to randomly assigned, you know, 50% of the people that we recruited into the pilot uh, and the others didn't get one. And, and the idea was that, you know, that might make them feel more connected with the trial and make them, you know, feel more likely to participate and turn up for their follow-up visits and complete the questionnaires and so on. So I, I just thought again, it was, and actually that SWAT is on, there's a Northern Ireland repository it's 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 hosted by Queen's University, but they have um, a repository of SWATs. I think it's the TMRN group in Northern Ireland. And um, we were really delighted when they accepted our, our the protocol for our SWAT. And it's, it's sort of there for others to take a look at. So, yeah, again, another example of, I suppose, the, the PPI contribution to a trial. And, and I think, you know, that that could very well, as you said, be applied to cancer trials, you know, a- asking the, the people for whom the research is relevant how would you design this? How would you try to improve recruitment and retention? And that, like, like from our point of view, we have set up a patient consultants committee and, and actually the members of it asked for it to be called patient consultants on purpose. And, and what they're doing is they're sitting in our closed research meetings and and we're getting to a point, hopefully soon, where they're going to design their own study. And it'll be very much coming directly from our members of our patient consultant group, all of whom have been on clinical trials themselves. Um, so it's a great, it'll be a great testament to the group if we're able to do that. And there's, you know, I have to say the oncology community have been really receptive um, to this, but but at the same time, it's very new. You know, we haven't really seen a patient's leading trials in Ireland and leading the concept behind it. No, that's very exciting. Yeah. And I'd love to keep in touch as to how that goes. I, I should mention at this point, Evelyn, you know, through my own involvement with um, PPI and our young adult work, I, I became involved with our PPI Ignite office here in NUI Galway. This was back in 2018. So, Murphy and I have been leading the PPI effort locally with other colleagues. And and then, uh, you know, at the end of the... the, So, this was an initiative jointly funded by HRB and IRC to try and build capacity for high-quality PPI in our universities. And so, we, we established a PPI Ignite office in NUI Galway. And then, at the end of the three years of funding, there were five... PPI Ignite offices across the country. We then responded to a call again from the HRB IRC, but co-funded with the host universities. And we now have a PPI Ignite network, as we call it. So this is a network of seven universities, 10 national partners, including organizations that you'd be familiar with, IPOSI, HRCI, and 53, I think, local partners. So we, we have a real a momentum or a head of steam yeah, in terms of, of, of trying to really get PPI to happen in Ireland. I think that, you know, we, those of us who are advocates for it, you know, I, I see it as being a really important part of doing clinical research well. And and I, I have, you know, in my head, things like you know, research ethics committees are hardwired into the, the research process. You know, you can't 100%. even think yeah. about designing a study Forget without it. thinking about your ethics yeah. application. Yeah. yeah. So wouldn't it be, you know, in 10 years time, if, if PPI, you know, were to be hardwired in and, and it, it doesn't mean that that, you know, cancer trialists or, or any trialists ha- have to, you know, 
have you know the level of PPI that I've described. But but you know the way this is going, as I see it, there will be an insistence increasingly by the funder and and by the the government. You know this is public money in the majority of cases that we're spending. Um, is that you know there will be an expectation that we embrace PPI and that we that we consider it in our in our protocols in our um, applications you know for for funding and so on and I, I you know I mean I've I've backgrounds in, in working with IPOSI and, and UPASI the European platform for yes. for um for patient involvement in research and and I remember whenever the funding agencies in Ireland first started talking about PPI. It was almost like a tick the box, you know, um, as part of the mm. application. And we get phone calls asking, can I, would, would a patient, could we put your name to this for, for PPI? Mm. And it's great to mm. hear that it's become, it's more than that now, that, that we've got PPI Ignite, that, that this is a genuine, uh, you know, from the universities that generally are trying to mm. drive this. And I, I hope so. Yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot of kudos for the funders. I think for the health research board and and other funders out there because I do think they get it. You know, and and they're really they're they're setting the bar for the rest. You know, for for those that they fund, to to come up to the mark. You know, and yeah, it's it's interesting. Yeah. We've started since we since the network kicked off in March of this year. We've started one one of our one of the expectations is that our you know from the funders is that um, Ireland, you know create some impact uh, in this whole space internationally. So we've been looking at how other countries are approaching PPI. And I, my sense is that I, I have colleagues in the, in the UK, you know, funded by organizations like NIHR and, and so on. And, and my sense is that there may be an element of, you know, standards being imposed from the top down, you know, around, around PPI. And I think that can sometimes motivate people, but it can also lead to that tokenism or that tick box um, approach that you described. I, I think because Ireland is a small, you know, it's 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 the size of Greater Manchester, I, I, you know, people keep keep reminding me of that, you know, is that we can actually, we can do this well. And, and I think, I like to think that the approach we're taking in Ireland is, is not so much top down, but it's more bottom up. We're actually reaching out to, you know, and, and, and indeed through podcasts like this, we're, we're trying to get this to happen, you know, at the at the grassroots level, that people actually see value in it, you know, that, that people are not being told to do it, but rather they they are wanting to do it and do it well. So we have a work stream that is, you know, that is around undergraduate and postgraduate education in PPI methods. And I, I think the next generation of trialists and of clinician investigators in Ireland will have been exposed to PPI from very early on. And I, I think, I mean, it's nice to have to hear somebody like you say that it's it's happening, but actually I think it's only, we're, we're only on the cusp of, of it happening properly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's very exciting, exciting to hear that you, you know, at undergraduate level, this is being discussed because I think that's where it has to really and, and I loved hearing about burst I'm going to look into that um in yeah, the UK yeah. because RSPRs in in oncology have come together and um as a group just this year and and I think it's you know they're in, they're really interested in running their own trials and they want to find a way in so that's that's a model I'd like to look at for Well for, I, I have a yeah I have a connection with burst urology I don't know the other bursts but um, yeah, it's a very yeah. very interesting approach and I, I think it is the next generation again of of clinician investigators so I, I think that yeah if you were to turn the clock back you know maybe 20 30 years 
ethics wasn't always hardwired in. It is now. I, I think if you fast forward 10 or 15 years, my strong sense is that approaches which involve the people for whom the research is relevant will be mainstream. You know, they will, it will happen. That's, that's my, my strong sense. And I, I think as an Ignite network, I think we're, we're tasked with trying to facilitate that. Simple things, seemingly simple, around, you know, payment. Um, you have no idea how complicated, you know, money makes the world go around, but actually, you know, f- paying people for their contribution. Absolutely. While you would think that it should be straightforward, it is anything but in our universities, in our hospitals, in our public system, you know. Yeah, we've created honorariums for patient engagement because, you know, if you're going to treat people equally, (laughs) you know, uh, if you're someone who is a patient, you also have a career and a job and a family and commitments like everybody else. So your time is precious. So so we do we do that. And and I think it's important. It's it's, it's even more it's even more complicated, Evelyn, because, you know, we've I've realized um, that that, you know, some of our PPI contributors are living with a disability, for example, and 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 actually, even getting any kind of payment, you know, can impact on their disability oh, allowances. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, so the, so that the system, whatever that means, the system needs to wake up to the fact that it has to change. It has to adapt. You know, we have to make the policies and the procedures that we have in our in our universities, in our hospitals. You know, we have to make them facilitate the, the yeah. patient voice being yeah. heard. Absolutely. God, you're, you're giving me um, so much. It's so comforting to hear you talk like this and, and to talk about what the future might look like in 20 years time. If we if we are like it's great at the minute with ethics, we have a national ethics committee and fantastic to see that actually happening. I thought we'd never see the day <laughs> that we would have a mm. national ethics committee for drug trials, as, as you know, when we put the clinical trials regulation coming into play next year. I, I don't know if any of us ever thought that was going to happen. And and I'd like to think that the same will be true in 20 years time for patient led research and trials. Um, I, My sense is it will. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a really positive note uh, t- to finish on, Sean. Um, but but one of the things that I, I hear from you is how busy you are and, and how you know, you've got a lot going on and in terms of your role as, as a consultant and obviously a lecturer and you're, you know, you're you're working on trials. How do you wind down um, when you're not <laughs> yeah. working? Um, yeah, um, I like to run. I find running um, just a fantastic uh, de-stressor. And and I think during COVID I ran a lot, <laughs> so you can you can yeah. you can interpret that as you like. But um, I I just yeah my, one of my favorite um, authors is um, a Japanese novelist. His name is Haruki Murakami. I'm sure he's known to a lot of people listening. Um, but he's he's most most of his output has been uh, novels. Um, but he's written a f- two or three nonfiction books, and one of his nonfiction books has the the wonderful title of. Um, what I talk about when I talk about running um, yeah. and it's it's a, it's a, I dip into I regularly re sort of visit the book because um, it's just full of wisdom he, he he describes you know his life as a novelist and he talks about you know his life as a runner he's he's a you know person who enjoys running and and I, I feel I feel very blessed really to be um, you know able to to get out there 
to get out there and just you know we live in a I live in a beautiful part of the world and and um, you know getting out into especially trail running um, which is very very I, I don't know what it is it's kind of soulful you know it's it just um, and, and so you go going out into past the, Barna, the woods. do you get up I go out the, out to yeah, yeah Derura um, which is a mountain bike trail if you go early there are no bikes around. Um, <laughs> And and there's a couple of Quilche forest um, areas that are not very well known, but you can sort of seek them out. Yeah, just just running in the woods is is tremendously um, satisfying. I don't know what the yeah. word is. We all need it's it. Good for I the think head. it's yeah. good for the head to be out with, yeah. with nature. I I do a lot of yeah. the kayak, um, and I and and it's good just to you need to do that, don't you, to kind of clear the mind. We've had a hard, I think, particularly when anyone working in clinical um, environments has had a hard couple of years with COVID and you kind of have to have that balance. But Parkrun park run is back up and running, so that's the good yes. news. You know, I, I'm also a big Parkrun fan, so we have our local Parkrun back up and running and that's that's another lovely running kind of community. Yeah, That's great. Well, it's great. And do you, do you compete yeah. with yourself? Like, do you have a PB? That's the thing. That's the thing. Yeah, I, I'm not willing to reveal it on a podcast but uh, you have to check it out on the park run well, we, website we have, but, um, we have a, yeah, yeah. one of our patient uh, consultant committee members is is a uh, yeah he's constantly trying to beat his pb um and the yeah. same guy um was on a clinical trial uh, with stage four lung cancer and now he's trying to wow. compete with his yeah, pb brilliant. in a park run isn't that amazing so listen thank you so much not this has been a joy yeah. and and i think everyone listening to this will have will take some some knowledge away and some learning and i know that i'm going to want to come back to you to talk um about a couple of the insights you've given us particularly the study within a trial that's another day's podcast but we could pick your brains on that thank you thank you Sean. fantastic yeah thanks Evelina, for the opportunity to talk and and good luck to the the patient consultant committee i really look forward to hearing how that develops and, and yeah um, we might get you to we might get you to meet some of them we definitely touch. will keep in touch thank you thanks a million The Cancer Trials Ireland podcast is funded through the Just Ask campaign 2021. Every year, Cancer Trials Ireland raises awareness of clinical trials in Ireland through the Just Ask campaigns. See cancertrials.ie for more.